And with that, let's come back to Exodus. We're going to be looking namely at chapter 4, verses 10 through 26. We're not going to quite get to 31. Maybe next time uh, we'll pick that up next week. But it begins as we jump back in to hear God engaging Moses and calling Moses to ministry. But as he does so, Moses throws up all kinds of what in the end are just excuses. And if you familiar with excuses like this, I don't have time to exercise. Or healthy foods are just too expensive. I've had a bad day. I really just deserve a treat today. Why are you not losing weight? I've got a slow metabolism. I I can start my diet tomorrow. Any of those sound familiar. Any of you use them. I won't look. I won't ask for hands. But what are they? They're excuses. Excuses, excuses. The lines, or maybe lies, that we tell ourselves and others to justify why we're not doing the thing we know we should be doing, the thing we kind of want to be doing, but we don't want to do it enough because we're not doing it. So what do we tell people? I got a slow metabolism. That's the problem. Well, unfortunately, Christians are not immune from trying to leverage excuses either. And what if we did a top 10 list of the excuses used for why you don't read your Bible regularly? Let me give you five. Number one, I'm too busy. Number two, I don't know where to start. Number three, I don't see the Bible's relevance to my life. Or number four, I tried it like once for a couple weeks and then I hit Leviticus and it was all over. Number five, I'm just easily distracted. Resonate with any of those. Or how about a list of excuses to then needle down to on where we might throw these up for why we don't share the gospel like we should, why we're not faithful messengers like we know we should be. Here's four excuses I found on Crew's website. Number one, I'm afraid they'll ask me questions that I won't know the answer to. Excuse number two, I'm kind of struggling in my own faith right now. Excuse number three, I never really learned how. Excuse number four, I don't know where to start the conversation. Ever used any of those? Again, I won't look. No show of hands. I think we all struggle in this way. And I can say that with confidence, even as we see in this text, we're going to see Moses struggle in this way. Where he's being called to be a faithful messenger, God's speaking to him, appointed him for this task, and yet, instead of engaging it, Moses throws up excuses about why he's not going to do this. But what we see, too, in all of this, in all of our excuses, and the excuses that Moses throws up as well, God loves us still. He's still committed to using us, even when we aren't exactly strong of faith. Because here's the issue. He loves us too much to leave us where we are in our unbelief, lack of faith, our doubt, and unfaithfulness. That is, as we're throwing up excuses for why we're not doing what God has so clearly called us to do, this really probably stems from a more serious spiritual problem, and that's a wavering faith, a lack of belief, unbelief, really unbelief that God can work even through us for whatever reason. And so to this, we return to Exodus chapter 4 to Find out how can we overcome these excuses? How can we walk forward and fulfill our call to be one faith-filled but then faithful messengers for God, again, as He's called us to be? So get this, to continue where we were last time, you cannot stop our faithful God from bringing His true word to pass. 
So we saw this, that he's the I am. He's the promise keeper. He's going to keep his word. And what we find here, as for Moses, but also for us, he's called you to be the messenger of it. When did he call me? Well, if you're in Christ, you're part of the church, Matthew chapter 28 is pretty clear. Go make disciples. You all, go make disciples of all nations. That's a call for each one of us and collectively as the church. So then, if he's going to keep that promise and have the gospel go through his church, the question is, will you be a faithful messenger? Will you be a conduit and vehicle for the message of God, the gospel to go? Or, instead of a faithful messenger, will you be a faithless, doubting obstacle to that? Well, we don't want to be that. So how can we be faith-filled, faithful messengers? Well, number one, you need to proclaim what the Lord has promised. We saw this last time as we concluded in chapter 3. The most basic, fundamental step of being a faithful messenger is you got to open your mouth and proclaim the message that God has given, namely of His promises that He's fulfilled. And that was true for Moses. But how much more for us, this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? We've seen so many promises come to pass, and God's not done. We have a great message to give out. Well, to set back the context, because we're still there, we've been at the burning bush with Moses. God was getting his attention, and he was saying, I am the promise-keeping God. I am Yahweh. I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt. But here's the catch, Moses. I'm going to use you to tell them about it, to tell Israel, to tell the elders of Israel, and also to talk to Pharaoh. And surprise, surprise, he's not too keen on that idea. And what he's not keen about, Moses, that is, he's not keen about getting involved in this. And so as we turn to chapter 4, what do we find is he's been identified as the messenger. Moses is throwing up all kinds of objections, excuses. Moses instantly becomes, to this great idea from God, the Debbie Downer. Mr. Skeptical, but God, what if it rains? What then? It's a great idea, but you know it's not going to work, right? What if they don't believe me when I tell them? Or or what if Pharaoh's like against this whole thing and says no? What are we going to do then? And yet God is not deterred in the least. So what does he do? He gives Moses and the people signs Proofs of His promises. In a similar way to be a faithful messenger, we do well. To accompany the preaching of the Word, especially as people have honest questions, of the proofs, the testimonies, either in Scripture or in history, that hold up and demonstrate the Bible's veracity. Well, what's step three? And that's this. If we're going to be a faith-filled messenger, you need to step forward in faith. You need to step forward planning on His help for your frailties. Verses 10 to 17. Because as we're here now, middle of chapter 4, despite all the signs and helps that God's giving to Moses, Moses still has all kinds of reservations. And namely, not with God seemingly and his plan, but that again, Moses needs to be involved. He opens up here, I'm no messenger. I can't speak good. I'm not good with words. There's got to be someone else who can handle this so much better. Have you ever been there? Especially when we're talking about sharing the gospel to others, speaking to them about Jesus. Oh God, I so desperately want so-and-so to know you. Just let someone else tell them about it, not me. Prayed that one? God, I'm not studied. 
I'm not a theologian. I'm not articulate. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? And I have to say, I don't know. God, just go find someone else. Get Rick to do it. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, said to Yahweh, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Here's his objection. I'm not good with words. And I dare submit to you that this is entirely untrue, Moses. Despite whatever he claims here, and whatever probably he just thinks about himself, Moses isn't so bad with words after all. Now, why would I say that? There's a couple of clues in the text. But this notion that Moses actually maybe is quite proficient with his mouth, that's confirmed by the martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Remember him? So we're in the New Testament now. In Acts chapter 7, before he dies, Stephen gives a whole short history of the people of Israel, and he spends a considerable time talking about Moses. And here's what he has to say about Moses as he describes him. And get this, what I'm going to read in verse 22 of Acts 7, he's describing Moses prior to Moses murdering the Egyptian and prior to God ever encountering Moses at the burning bush. Here's how Stephen describes Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is Acts 7, verse 22. And Moses, he writes, was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Stephen seems to think Moses was actually pretty good with his mouth. Which, if you go and read the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, he even writes songs in it. Of course he was mighty with his words. Despite all of his excuses, I don't think Moses was so clumsy with his words after all. I mean, just as proof, look how he even eloquently, so eloquently describes his own speech difficulties. Do you see that back here in Exodus 4? It's not like he just mumbles back to God, I ain't good with words as is, no gooder speak enough -er. No. He rehearses such troubles that he has in his speech with great expression. Now, why do we make this connection? To point out, I don't think Moses, I don't think he's just trying to make up some excuse. I don't think it's that. But that even despite all his training, despite his experience, despite his abilities, he really did feel inadequate for the task, whether he was or not. And why do you think that is? Why do you think he so doubted his abilities? Hadn't he been here before? Didn't he try and deliver Israel before? And how did that go? Not so good? In other words, I think his confidence in his abilities was totally shot because he'd failed. He tried and failed horribly. And, and I know this from my own paltry attempts at athletics and sports. And by paltry, I'm not being modest. It's true. But even as you watch professionals, I mean, the old saying goes in sports, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. Well, that might not quite be right, but it's true. Sports is physical, but it's also very mental. If you know it in athletics or doing anything that takes grace, if you have confidence in your golf swing, if you feel comfortable with your jumper on the court, things just start going in. 
But when you lose your confidence, things don't go in. And that's where I was far more often, especially as I played second base for a spell in high school. I got to the point, my confidence was so shot in my fielding abilities. I mean, I'm there in the field getting ready for the pitch saying, don't hit to me, don't hit to me, don't hit to me, don't hit to me. Before the ball was ever put in play. And guess what? When they hit to me, what was I ready to do? Mess it up. Actually, there was one time where I successfully fielded the ball that was hit directly at me. It's like, just put your glove right on the turf or on the ground and you'll pick it up. I did. But I was so shot at my nerves as I turned to first base to make really the easiest throw in all of baseball. I chucked the ball, not over the first baseman's head, but over the backstop and into the stands. And why? Well, I can tell you that error was not physical but mental. Why? Because I had made that throw countless thousands of times. But I was so convinced I would mess up, I was a walking, self-fulfilling prophecy of my team's demise. Well, back to Moses. Not to over-psychoanalyze him or something, but I think that's where he's at. He's tried before. He's failed. He's more than a bit gun-shy. He says he's not good at speaking. He thinks he's not good at speaking. And maybe we're kind of in the same boat when it comes to being a faithful messenger. When it comes to speaking about Christ, you know, suddenly you can be quite easy to talk to somebody about, say, your sports team, or you can talk to somebody about the weather. No problem. But then the issue of Jesus comes up and it's like, you don't even know what to say anymore. Even though you love Jesus, you know his word. You know you can speak about him, but there's something wrong. And this is a mental block, you might say, kind of like me at second base. And why do we have this? Maybe we failed before. Maybe we're just really scared to try even. But I think more fundamentally, it's this issue of fear versus faith, isn't it? Because observe the way the Lord looks to overcome Moses, either his actual deficiencies in speaking or more or more to it, probably, his faith weakness. Because what God does, he turns Moses' eyes away from Moses and gets them to God. Look at verse 11 of Exodus 4. And the Lord said to Moses, Listen, Moses, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Moses, you're talking to the wrong person. About tell me how inadequate you are, because it's not about you. I didn't make the wrong choice. Even Moses, understand, even if you were mute, you had no physical ability to speak, I can still make you my messenger. It hadn't happened yet, but it's like, listen, watch this. In the future, Moses, I'm going to make a donkey talk. You don't think I can use you? But more than just overcoming our weaknesses, he does more. Even if we have a very speech impediment and we can't talk, he can do even more than that if it be his will. Look at verse 12. He doesn't merely overcome our frailties. He does this. He says to him, Now therefore go, Moses, and I I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. I'll be with you, Moses. 
I'm going to be right at your side. And this too parallels the promise we have in the gospel, isn't it? We remember our call to be faithful messengers. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. Wow, that's such a crazy mission you've given us, Jesus. We can't do it, but where does he end it? And I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He doesn't say go it alone. He says, I'm going and I'm taking you with me to be my messengers. Moses, get your eyes off you. This isn't about you. And you can hear it. I'm not a good speaker, God. They won't believe me. I'm no good at this. I've tried this and I have failed. I can't. I'm not good enough. Moses, Rick, Aaron, Amy, Brian, this isn't about you and how all the times I've failed. Speaking of you, it's about Christ. He made your mouth, and more than that, He will be with it to guide your mouth every step of the way to teach precisely what He wants. Can He not do this? He's saying, I can. Even all of the obstacles of your weaknesses and even weakness of faith, all of your former failures, you can't stop my promise from going forth even when I choose you as the vehicle for it. So Moses should be on board with that word, but we can see as we look at verse 13, he's not there yet. Let's see this, Exodus 4.13. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Send anybody else. God, this is a great idea. Just get someone else to do it. And at this, the Lord becomes angry with Moses. Verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And maybe as a parent or a boss or a manager, you maybe know this kind of frustration. You have somebody that's working for you or that's under your supervision, and there's some part of the job they're just not doing that's got to be done, and you're not just like ready to fire them. You're coming alongside of them. You're going out of your way to help them, to set them up for success. You're like, I'll go to the board meeting with you. I'll coach you on what to tell them. I'll be right there, and if you have a question, I can come right behind you. This isn't a problem. And they're still like, no, 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 no way. I'm not doing that. And that's frustrating. It's like your help is meaningless to them. I think that explains something about why the Lord's anger is kindled, the fire is lit. And yet even then, this is part of God's mercy to us. He doesn't just wipe Moses off the map. You know, let's move Moses aside and start with someone better. No, God's determined to use Moses. He's determined to grow Moses and use him for this mission even if it means he has to get others alongside of him to cobble this together. Look at verses 14 to 16. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth, and with his mouth, excuse me, Verse 15, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. As in, you will seem like the source of the message. So now we have this game of telephone to get the message of God to people. It goes with God, it goes to Moses, Moses goes directly to Aaron, and then Aaron goes out to all the people. 
fine, Moses, if you're so determined not to speak on behalf of my name, I'll get a spokesman for you. And so Aaron's voice is the one that's going to be heard by all the people. But you can see already this process, because of Moses' lack of faith, is becoming quite a bit more complicated. And then you want to ask, but God, wouldn't it just be easier just to like put Moses aside and let's just start over? Just find somebody willing who's ready to do this? But this is, the way, this is not the way God works. This is not about efficiency. This isn't about how streamlined can you get the message of God out there. See, God's committed to Moses. Namely, he's committed to using him in this process, even by a lack of faith, Moses is making it harder, more convoluted. God's not going to let you out of this. If he's called you to himself, he's given you a mission, and he's not going to let you just sit by on the sidelines with all of your fears and insecurities and inabilities. No, he's about exposing those to then have your faith centered on him. And that's what he's doing with Moses here. He wants to grow you. He wants to increase your faith. And that means he's calling you out into faithful obedience. And actually, God often calls the weak. He calls the failed. He calls the trembling to do these very great things of his promises and purposes. Why? Why does he do it that way? Well, then who gets the credit? God does, not you. Because even as Moses stepped forward in this, albeit now limited, role, Moses stepping forward, he says, I know I'm weak. He's really scared. He can't depend on himself. So he has to depend on God. And it's in that humble posture, that's where God is ready to act and to do something. Let me give you an example to modern times. Just an example that always sticks in my mind since I heard of it. And it's the example of the pastor John Piper. Uh, His influence if you're not familiar with him, has been tremendous, as as powerful as his preaching is about Christ. I mean, this man has preached to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But did you know that John Piper got C's in all of his public speaking courses? I heard him once recount how in high school, when it was his turn to give a speech in class, like it's going around the class and it's his turn to go speak, he ran away crying to the bathroom and took a zero because he was so terrified of opening his mouth in front of other people. You can imagine as he's graduating from high school, he's the last guy voted to be the next megachurch pastor. It's not going to be him. But what changed? What happened? God happened. Though he was terrified at speaking, he was walking around his college campus, I think walking to a class, and he bumped into the school chaplain, who he kind of knew, and the chaplain just asked John out of the blue, hey, would you lead in prayer at chapel this week? And John just reflexively said, yeah. And then as the, you can imagine, the chaplain turns around, walking away, and John's like, what did I just do? I said, yes. Oh, no. So he's crying out to the Lord in prayer, not looking to himself, but to Christ. And he said, Lord, if you just get me through this, I'll never again turn down an opportunity to speak for your name. And the rest is history. A history of God working through one man's weakness to show how great our God is. And so the call is to us to walk forward in faith, not faith in ourselves, not in our abilities, but a faith in Christ that even He can use us, open our mouths to get the message out. 
And so we step forward saying, but God, I need the words. I need the strength of faith. I need the peace. I need the resolve. And so we're saying, oh God, just let me be faithful. I need you to provide. Do your work through me. I'm stepping out in faith. In that case, that's what it looks like here. A faith that he will provide his help in your moment of need, even your frailty to do his will. Furthermore, we might need the help of others. And he's calling us to provide help to one another as fellow messengers to get the gospel out. Provide help to one another as fellow members of God's family to get the message out. And we see that here in verses 18 to 26 here in Exodus 4. And we see it already with God providing Aaron to Moses. He's giving us one another to help each other, to equip each other, that we might together be more faithful messengers. And we find it first as Moses goes, speaking of family, he goes to his father-in-law to ask permission. Permission to take his daughter and his grandchildren away from him to Egypt. Verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. I kind of wonder on the one hand, if Moses goes to his father-in-law kind of hopeful, thinking this might be a roadblock of God's will. You know, it's like, God, okay, I'll do it. But I got to go to Jethro and I know he's going to say no. And then what does Jethro say? Go in peace. Oh, great. No problem. Jethro says, go in peace. As in, go with God's blessing and favor upon you. In a way, Jethro's saying, who am I to stand in the way of the will of God? But it's interesting, as Moses goes, at least as we have it recorded, as he goes to ask permission from Jethro to leave, he doesn't mention the whole mission of God to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And I assume that was said. It's not recorded here. But it draws then what was said. What was it that Moses shared that then moved Jethro to grant permission? Let's go back to the text. It says there in verse 18, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt. And to be clear, in the, in the Hebrew mindset, we're not talking necessarily about fellow sons of the same mother. We're talking about just the whole race or the whole people of Israel. So let me go see what my brothers are like in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. You get that there's this family tie, this family commitment, this family pull, this covenant commitment where God says and he promises, these are my people. And Moses saying, they are my people and I'm concerned for them. There's this heart that's bound to the people of God as very family. And that's still true today as we are the church brought in by Christ into God's family. We are adopted sons and daughters because of Christ's work on the cross, if we trust in Him. And we are then one in the same family in a similar commitment like Moses shares here to know whether they're still alive. How are they doing? I have concern for my brothers and sisters in the body. That's what it should look like for us, ready to provide aid and help to the family of God. And indeed, we heard an excellent testimony to that from one of our most recent member candidates, if you remember. Britlin said this, 
She said, I want to join Grace Bible Church because since the first day I visited, the genuineness and love expressed and shown to me from total strangers overwhelmed and captivated my heart, she says. She adds this, no longer strangers, but united in Christ, now my brothers and sisters, my eternal family. And to that I want to say, we all do, amen. Because she gets it. She's new here. She doesn't know everybody. But she knows that you know Christ, and we know one another, and that means we family. We're committed to one another. And I want to say amen twice. First, for her perspective, shows this desire to be formally committed to God's family. But two, also she noted, you're already in many ways caring for her, Grace Bible. Praise God. May we excel still more. Furthermore, if we're going to help one another be faithful messengers, we need to come alongside with the Word of God. This is the fuel, this is the assurance we need that we're on the right track, that we're on the right message. And we see that God has given two messages for Moses here that encourages him, gives him the reassurance that he's on the right mission, that he's on the right track. And the first reassurance he gives, this first message is in verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Well, go back to Egypt. Why? For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. With this word, I kind of wonder if Moses' reservation to go back to Egypt wasn't mainly about this. That he thought when he got back to Egypt, the guys that wanted him dead were going to find him and make him dead. He fled Egypt because Pharaoh was seeking to kill him. And with this word from God, he has nothing to fear. Now, we in the church, this is the kind of reassurance and help we can provide for one another. We don't have assurances that physically things are going to be totally safe for us. Not at all. But we have soul safety, and this is how we encourage one another, that our soul is secure in Christ because Christ died for it and He's living and He's interceding for us. And so we're calling as reminders to one another, remember the promises, remember what Christ has done. May we then be faithful to that message all the way to the end, whatever it would be. Well, God has another message for Moses, and actually it's one that he's supposed to pass on to Pharaoh. And this, too, would give Moses great assurance about what God's doing in this. And it comes out in this mighty word he's supposed to give to supposedly mighty Pharaoh. We'll pick it up in verse 21 of Exodus 4. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is so interesting. Why did God give those signs and miracles to Moses? Do you remember? Where did he start at the beginning of chapter 4? What if they don't believe in me? And so then what's God going to do? Well, here, show them these miracles and then they'll believe. And yet God says here that, Moses, I want you to do those miracles before Pharaoh, but what's going to happen? I'm going to make sure he doesn't believe. I'm going to harden his heart. We'll speak more to why does God do that. But what's very clear is is that God is in charge. He's the director. He's the screenwriter. He's the producer. He's setting the whole stage. He's giving everyone the cues. He has a special play to put on for us all to see what he's like. He has a plan. 
And so what is God trying to teach us? What is he trying to show to the world with this continued struggle against Pharaoh? Why does he harden Pharaoh's heart to make sure there's this great struggle, this pulling of wills of Pharaoh and the Lord? There's a number of things, but we see it here in verses 22 and 23. Here's what God's trying to show Pharaoh and the world. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son, Pharaoh. And of course, this is ominous. This is, threatens the very plague that finally loosens Pharaoh's hand to let Israel go. But what's God trying to show as he hardened Pharaoh's heart and makes the struggle to get Israel out of Egypt so difficult? What's he trying to show? That Israel is my firstborn son. And what does this mean? I love these people. I care for them. They are mine. They are the apple of my eye. And there's no cost too great that I wouldn't pay to get them out of there, no matter what the opposition is. He loves his firstborn son. And he would stop at no length, no obstacle to get them out of there. And you realize, I trust you do, and I hope you know this in your soul. But this is kind of what Paul's talking about in Colossians chapter 1 when he's talking about the gospel. And he's transferred us, if we trust in Christ, that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead, we are then being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and placed where? Into the kingdom of the Son of the love of God. You are then hidden in Christ, so the Father's love for the Son pours out over you. So much that he would do anything to get you out of there. He's committed. There's no length he wouldn't take because he loves his son, and that's what he's done in redeeming us. Again, these are the truths. These are the reassurances we need to give one another so we can stand forward and be faithful messengers, especially when there's opposition. Because God would do anything for his son, those upon whom he sets his love. But speaking about sons... Next, we turn in the text to Moses' own son. In what must prove one of the very strangest texts in all the Bible. Is your interest peaked yet? And I'm glad I only have a maximum of like 12 minutes. So here we go. Moses and his family are on the way to Egypt. And as though they're on the way, God meets them. Except this is not like God meets them at the burning bush and merely take off your shoes. God's out to kill somebody. Verse 24. So at a lodging place, and the idea here is they're camping. This is the camping spot, probably near some water place or something. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now this is strange. This is just strange on very many levels. First, it's such a jarring contrast to where we've been at with Moses and his family, and because God's been gaining all kinds of assurances to get Moses to go on this trip. And then he goes on the trip, and then God interrupts it to say, somebody's about to die. But it's also strange because if there's a lot of confusion about this text, namely because there's all kinds of ambiguities here in the original text. Just one example. Some of your translations for verse 24 read like this. On the way the Lord met Moses, and sought to put him, that is Moses, to death. But the Hebrew doesn't say Moses. 
Like the ESV reads, it just says him. And so then the question becomes, well, who's the him that's supposed to die? Is it Moses or is it Moses' son? The Hebrew could go either way. And how do we then know the answer? you got to let the context tell you. Well, let's see if the context can tell us anything. Verse 25. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. I'm not sure that helped. (laughs) At least it makes sense of what's going on. This got awkward real quick. We're on a camping trip and suddenly we've stumbled into this circumcision ritual, right? With God's messenger. But a couple things are becoming clear. And so I think we do well to lay out what is clear from this text. Number one, Moses' son, probably his firstborn, Gershom, wasn't circumcised. And second, Zipporah, Moses' wife and the mom of Gershom, Zipporah sets to circumcise him, and so doing saves a life. Moses' son wasn't circumcised, Zipporah circumcised him, and a life is saved. So the big problem coming on in this journey then is that Gershom wasn't circumcised. And why was that such a big deal? It wasn't about health issues at all. Why was it a big deal? Well, ever since Abraham, circumcision was that outward sign and seal of an inward faith in God's promise. Such that God told Abraham this, Genesis 17, verse 11, God told Abraham, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. Think promise. This is a sign of the covenant, the promise between me and you. Such that if someone wasn't circumcised, this is Genesis 17, verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, He has broken my covenant. He's broken my promise. If you weren't circumcised, it showed you weren't part of the covenant people. You were outside the promises of God's graces. You were outside the family of God if you weren't circumcised. That's the big problem. And it's a particular problem for Gershom because God's ready to kill him. But was that any fault of Gershom? Don't usually circumcise yourself. Whose fault is it? Well, it's evident as the Zipporah cuts off the foreskin. Where does she put it? At Moses' feet. That was Moses' problem. He was supposed to have circumcised his son, but he didn't. He was faithless here. He didn't follow through on this promise, maybe because he even doubted God's commitment to the promise. Because again, Moses tried to deliver Israel out of Egypt and all of this stuff, and it failed miserably. Maybe he really wasn't sure God was going to come through on his word. And for that, God in the end was ready to kill Moses' firstborn son. Just like he's going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son because Pharaoh's outside of the covenant, but now it's coming for Moses' own. But Zipporah recognizes the peril, circumcises her son, and saves his life. And that perhaps explains what's going on. Her faith was stronger than Moses, at least at this point, and that's why she steps in to do what Moses should have himself done. 
That's why she says at the end, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. What she's saying? We're married. We're one flesh, me and Moses. So if I do this deed that Moses was supposed to do, it should still count. And in this way, she's showing her own faith in God's promises. And so the son spared. Verse 26. So the Lord let him alone, and it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Again, however all the details come together, this much is really clear. Zipporah steps in where Moses as a father had failed. He colossally had failed to instill faith and hope in the promises of God to his son. I think as we've noted, I think Moses probably had a hard time believing it himself. He never circumcised his son. He wasn't reminding him in that way of the covenant promises. But Zipporah wasn't going to let that take down her son and take his life. So she steps in 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 desperate faith and does the right thing that her husband wouldn't do. There's all kinds of lessons there for us in our families, literally our very own family units, but also in the way we care for one another is the whole body as a family. Husbands are to be leaders in their home. But we can advocate that spiritual leadership if we ignore our responsibility and calling to teach and shepherd our children in the admonition of the Lord. And so then wives then, in that case, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to respect and submit to your husband's true. What does that look like if he's a straight unbeliever? Review 1 Peter chapter 3. You follow him where you can. But there does come a time where for the sake of your child's soul, you must teach him the gospel. Teach him God's word. Hide it in their hearts. Train them up in the admonition of the Lord. Now, as I've just said that, tread very carefully here. You don't get to step in just because your husband doesn't lead quite the way you want him to. You don't get to step in because he doesn't lead with all the initiative you'd like to see. That's not an excuse for you to take over. Understand what the case with Zipporah here? This is life and death. It's a very extreme situation. But there may indeed come times, dear mothers, where you must fill the gap and fill in the void of a faithless father, raising up your precious children in the gospel. When and how to do that? Patiently, prayerfully. Because it would be so much better to work with the dad on this, wouldn't it be? If you still have questions about that, seek counsel from godly women in this church that have walked through that very situation. They've treaded that ground before. There's so much wisdom there. But that also means for you, fathers, don't be Moses here. Take your responsibility. God has called you to the spiritual care and responsibility for your children's souls. What will you do? It's not Steve Boone's responsibility. It's not Andrew Townsend's responsibility. It's yours. So what are you doing to train up your children to know Christ, to love Christ, to depend on Jesus with their whole life and soul and the decisions they make in life? And if you dare throw up some excuses... Oh, I'm not very good at Bible study. Or, I'm not really good with spiritual talk. I don't know how to get connect with my kids. Or, my wife's really the more spiritual one in the family. This is your calling, brothers. It's yours. Christ has called you to it. Did He not make your mouth? Did He not give you His Word? 
Did he not give his spirit to indwell you? Start right there with his word. Humbly pray. Get help, but lead. What is Christian leadership, men? It is this. Take spiritual initiative. That doesn't mean you have all the answers. You're stepping out in faith saying God does. I'm going to point people to him. And that's what we do not only in the microcosm of our families, but that's really the cosm, so to speak, of the church. We take spiritual initiative, pointing one another to Christ that we might be faithful messengers of the gospel outside and in. Really, to see what Paul describes in Colossians 3, lived out here every Sunday, but every day in the body of Grace Bible Church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Oh, Spirit, help us be faithful messengers. Let's pray together.